On this encore episode of The Literary Life, my guest is Edwige Danticat. She and I sat down together last year, celebrating the publication of her remarkable collection of stories, Everything Inside, which is just now out in paperback. Over this last year, Edwidge became the first two-time winner of the Story Prize, and Reese Witherspoon has just selected Everything Inside for her book club, bringing Edwidge's brilliant work to an even wider audience. You're listening to The Literary Life. Now sponsored by The Literary Hub, you can listen to us on LitHub Radio at lithub.com or on any of the many platforms you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to check out LitHub Radio for the finest variety of podcasts on literary subjects found anywhere on the internet. My guest today is Edwidge Stantecott. Edwidge is the author of many, many, many books, including Breath Eyes Memory, an Oprah Book Selection, Crick Crack, a National Book Award finalist, The Farming of Bones, The Dewbreaker, Create Dangerously, Claire of the Sea Light, and Everything Inside. She's also the editor of The Butterfly's Way, Voices from the Haitian Diaspora in the United States, Best American Essays, 2011, Haiti Noir, and Haiti Noir Two. She's written seven books for children and young adults, Anna Keona, Behind the Mountains, Eight Days, The Last Mapu, Mama's Nightingale, Untwined, My Mommy Medicine, as well as a travel narrative, After the Dance. Her memoir, Brother, I'm Dying, was a 2007 finalist for the National Book Award and a 2008 winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award for Autobiography. She's a 2009 MacArthur Fellow, a 2018 Ford Foundation, the Art of Change Fellow, and the winner of the 2018 Neustad International Prize. I've known Edwidge for almost 30 years, first meeting her when she traveled to Miami to participate in a writing conference sponsored by the University of Miami that was funded by James Mishner after he spent time here researching his novel, Caribbean. The conference participants would read from their work at the original Books and Books, just across the street from where we are now. All of us then, listening to this young woman, knew that we were in the presence of someone very, very special. Today we celebrate the publication of a new collection of stories, Everything Inside. And just like the rest of her body of work, this has been heralded with remarkable notices. The New York Times recently said, Haiti is the emotional core of this collection, though the characters roam the world. In these rich, vibrant stories, lovers reconcile after a catastrophe. A daughter meets her dying father for the first and last time, and a family reunites at a baby's christening. Publishers Weekly in a starred review writes, Families fracture and reform in Edwidge's outstanding and deeply memorable story collection. Set among the Haitian diaspora, including Miami, New York, and Haiti itself, the tales describe the complicated lives of people who live in one place but are drawn elsewhere. In plain, propulsive prose and with great compassion, Edweed writes both of her characters' losses and of their determination to continue. As she writes, there are loves that outlive lovers. Kirkus gives it a starred review and says, Extraordinary, spare, evocative, moving. Edwidge tackles the complexities of diaspora with lyrical grace. And from Oprah's magazine, Haunting, profound, an answered prayer for those who have long treasured Danticat's essential contributions to the Caribbean literary canon. Edwidge, welcome to The Literary Life. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Mitchell. Let's talk about your new book, Everything Inside. These are a collection of stories. First, how long have you been working on these stories? Well, the earliest of these stories goes back to 2006. So I have been, I've been working on the stories for a long time. Some of them are more recent, a couple of them, two of them, I wrapped up last year. 
Um, but I've always been working on short stories while I'm working on my other work, you know, my nonfiction and and other work, uh, because it's a form that I love very much. And I really love the way that in a short story you can have uh, sort of a limited universe. There's so much economy and there's so much layering. Uh, so I, I keep working on them no matter what else I'm doing. These stories are remarkable. And you include two epigraphs, which I think explain a lot about the stories. The first is by uh, Cindy Jimenez-Vera, and it says, being born is the first exile. To walk the earth is an eternal diaspora. First, who is Cindy? And tell me what the meaning of this is to you. Well, Cindy's a, a poet from Puerto Rico. And actually, the way this became the epigraph is a story on itself. She actually walked past me on an airplane and and said hello. And we, we chatted. And then she gave me her her collection of poems uh, just on the plane and I just I sat there and read them and um, there was actually one about sort of saying goodbye in an airplane and I I took a picture of that said that to my husband just in case <laughs> and then this other one I was like oh my gosh this has got to be like in my book because I feel like it encapsulates so much of what the, the spirit of the book is so she's a wonderful poet and um and we talk so much these days you know, about immigration and diaspora. And I feel like these the sentiment, you know, just takes it back to the beginning of just like birth as exile, you know, just takes it back to the like Adam and Eve being thrown out of of something primal, right? To to equate that experience with diaspora felt very powerful for me. And then the other epigraph is by Nikki Giovanni. We love because it's the only true adventure. And um when the I was putting the stories together because as you know, as you know, stories take on a whole different form when they're next to other stories by the same author. You know, you can be in a magazine with other things and someone reads that story, it's a singular experience. But when you have eight stories, then they're naturally, if it's by the same person, there are some common themes. And for me, um, one of the common themes is diaspora, but also love. You know, I see all of these stories as essentially love stories, whether they're, you know, romantic love, parent and child love, um, love of country. Uh, so all of those, you know, both of both diaspora and love are central themes in the stories. And what was so interesting to me is when I, I, I read these stories twice through and I read the epigraphs the second time. I didn't really read them the first time. And when I read them the second time, it, it really, a light bulb went off. Because when I read them the first time, what struck me was just how universal these stories are. And then with the epigraph, where you talk about being born as the first exile, we're all born. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, the universality of it all is just that. And even though these stories are very particular about uh, mostly Haitian diaspora, um, I think that I, not being Haitian, responded and reacted to all of them on a very human level. And the same with love. The love that is shown in all of these isn't particular necessarily to any particular um, sensibility. It's love in general. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's love and I think people seeking love, people misunderstanding love, people... You know, taking love for granted. Well, and facing love, yeah. facing love in very harsh circumstances. Yes, exactly. Well. Which is which is all I think part of, you know, the difficult experiences, even even uh, especially when they're linked to you know economic hardships. I mean, that's I think sometimes people forget that in the middle of political strife, in the middle of very difficult lives. People still love, you know, people fall in love and they get married. And and I think that's something that we deprive um, people of this, that type of narrative also and from the places where I come from. You know, if people are separated from their children, it's because they don't love the way, you know, we do or what, you know, that, I've heard that a lot. Like, oh, they, these people don't love their children the way we do love their children because they're at right. the border with them because they left them behind and so forth. So I think that's something that's not 
that's not allowed to us sometimes, that people who were enslaved love their children, well, you know, or that people were in political situations too. Yeah. What it reminds me of a little bit is that notion that when we think of history, we just think of the really big events, mm -hmm. but we don't think of the small things that really matter to the individual person. Mm -hmm. That there's a lot of humanity that happens that that doesn't reflect itself in the fact that there was World War One. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there was humanity happening in between the headlines, so to speak. And I think that's what you brought out so naturally in this book. The backdrop are these very large events, mm -hmm. but it's how they affect individual people that brings that brings them home, I think. Mm -hmm. Is that something you'd agree with? Well, this that's what I really love in this form, you know, in the short story as a form. Is that it? Sort of. It seems like a, a smaller, you know, cousin to the to the bigger narratives, like to the novel. But I think the shape of it allows you to magnify smaller moments, right? To linger um, on on these small epiphanies and these smaller interactions that that mean so much. So yes, I mean, I think that's that's what I I feel like it's it's like painting, right? And 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 often when you're asked to like look at this detail, you know, and so that's that's what I'm trying to do. So sort of like in the in the creases and then the folds of people's lives, you know. Right. Well, there's that Williams poem, you know, so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens, right? Mm, and that's yeah. kind of mm -hmm. what this is. This is yeah. these are those red wheelbarrows. Yeah, and and there and there's always going to be, I think. Um, for people who come from a place like I come from, come you know, there's always going to be a big backdrop, right? There's always going to be some big event, whether it's political, whether the the event is the distance itself, you know, the fact that people are living away from from their country, but there's also you know the daily life, and and I really wanted in the stories to go into the daily lives and how people manage that with the with a larger background. Well, one of the more moving stories for me was the story about the two lovers who are meeting on the 4th of July. And the backdrop is that one of the lovers, the, the man, um, lost his leg and his family in the earthquake. And uh, the woman that he's meeting was... Um, one of his lovers, not his wife, obviously. And the way you have that unfold is just so wonderfully and so beautiful, so masterfully that I wonder where the genesis of that came from. And how did you choose to have the earthquake, to play the earthquake out in that particular way? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the uh, soon it will be the 10th year anniversary of, of the earthquake. And I personally, you know, in my, I lost family members in the earthquake. I lost friends. And I started, um, when I started writing that story, was uh, actually thinking of a Murakami collection after the quake. And in that collection, he, there's six stories where, where they follow people after this earthquake. And so you're dealing with the aftermath in the people's lives or so sort of, kind of like the fault lines within themselves. And then this couple, there are these people who are sort of living this, you know, uh, this life. And then what happens afterwards and how do they recover? And it's not so much just about just like recoupling, if you will, but also what new insight do they have into their lives, into life in general. So that's what intrigued me the most about sort of people picking up um, like very difficult pieces, you know, after a tragedy. And, and, you know, the, the, one of them says, you know, we were all supposed to be better. We were all supposed to have changed. Right. And then, and, and the irony is that sometimes even after big things like that, we all sort of were, were better for a minute. Right. Right. <laughs> and, then, well, and, and the character is struggling, with, yeah. struggling with this kind of sense of guilt. It may be, mm -hmm. Maybe she was happy that there was a death of yeah. the wife, and then, and then makes a. I mean, the name of the story is the gift, and mm -hmm. and and the gift that she gives is so kind of inappropriate as mm -hmm. well. In yeah, because way. there there is really no gift that would be appropriate for that right. for that type of loss. But uh, I think it's so 
like when you have such a, a big communal loss, of course, everybody, um, you know, experiences their loss in different ways. But then there are always this sort of shards, I think, things that like these other repercussions of this loss that that takes a while. It's like after we've done all the big work that, you know, we sort of start collecting and talking about. So that's what this this story is is about. So tell me just, I don't like to talk about process too much, but so you write so much and you write in so many different forms. So when you have this idea, um, and I'm sure it came as an idea, do you immediately ascribe it to a short story uh, as opposed to something larger like a novel? Do you write it down in a notebook that this is an idea that you want to play out at some point? Or do you immediately set about writing it at the moment you think about it? Well, this particular, you know, the, the short story, The Gift, I first wrote it as a play. Uh-huh. And this fall, it's actually, it's actually going to be produced as a play at SUNY Purchase oh, in, it is. in New York. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So I wrote it as a play, but in the play... It, the you know he comes to visit you know the the gentleman visits uh his former mistress and and her apartment in Miami where she's retreated after the earthquake to Haiti and it and the play was very conversational it was and then there was a, a an uncle who was a politician in Haiti it was it was sort of like these people getting together to try to rebuild the country from afar which is what a lot of us in the diaspora try to do at least when we gather so I, I, that one, it seemed like it was going to be a play. So I wrote, I wrote it as a play and then I wanted to, to like del- delve more. And then I wrote it as a story, but often I try when I get different, um, ideas, I try to let the, the idea guide me to what it wants to be. And like, sometimes it doesn't, you know, it starts as a play and ends up as a story or it starts as a short story and ends up longer. Um, but I just try to let that let that guide me. But I I know the the only immediate differentiation that occurs to me is sometimes the nonfiction stuff. So there are things that I feel like, oh, I have to say this now. So it has to be like an essay or it has to be like a an opinion piece. And then and the fiction just takes longer because you have to form like human beings around whatever the idea. And sometimes the ideas come like you'll get a line that just guides you. But in terms of process, for me, what I always need is a beginning and an end. Like I need somewhere to start and a place to write towards. Mm. So that I, and even if the beginning ends up being the middle, but at least I, I have a, like I have something that I'm moving in the direction of. The other thing that I found very revelatory throughout the whole collection, and it is about the aspera, but it's really about the ease with which people move between countries. Mm-hmm. that you exist sometimes in two or three places at once, right? I mean, it's not unusual to be, in fact, one of the stories in which where one of the characters is being um, is being scammed, mm-hmm. basically. It's just so easy to be calling up people from Miami to Haiti, Haiti to Miami to New York, and finding things out. You know, the cell phones are working everywhere. And, you know... I intellectually understand that, but I think reading it so emotionally, I didn't quite understand just how easy it is. And it's not easy, but how how convenient it can be to be operating in so many different countries. Oh yeah, it's the new immigration. It's it's the it's transnationalism, right? Because when when my when I was a, a girl in Haiti and my parents needed to speak to me, we had a standing appointment where I used to go to a calling center in downtown Port-au-Prince every Sunday and wait there for them to call me at 3 p.m. Um, so we there were, we didn't have a phone at the house. There were no cell phones. But now I'm always, like, I get stuff from my cousins and my, my relatives in Haiti on WhatsApp all the time. <laughs> you know, they can tell. I'm like, I... I I realize that they can tell when I'm on the WhatsApp. <laughs> and so it's very it, the connections are much more So you feel fluid. connected. You yes, you feel you feel, feel very connected. connected. Um and it's very different and I think kids in Haiti like my young relatives know all about the United States. They watch the tele, you know, shows and 
which was very different than than when I was younger. But that you can even contrast that to like when it took like weeks by boat to get here, right? Like that old immigration pattern where and once you got here, you were here, you know. Right. And now people go back and forth more, much more. Um, especially if you're in Miami, like it's 90 minutes. I can be in Port-au-Prince sooner than I can be in New York, you know, from Miami. So it's there's that proximity, yet also a, a distance. Um, so I, I think that also creates um, some new narratives in terms of, you know, loyalty to the country and how, right. you know, you're very close to your to your relatives, but there are more and more barriers, for example, to them visiting with, you know, with the immigration with the laws. Immigration and, laws you know. Right. But do you feel it less isolated then? Because you do know what's going on. Oh, yes. I mean, I think like, for example, during the dictatorship, people had to, you know, like my parents' time when they just got here in the 70s, you had to go through a lot of, you know, trouble to get even information of what was happening in the country. Now, you know, immediately, you know, what's happening. So let's talk a little bit about hot air balloons, which I found to be really, really um, kind of stunning. I mean, in the sense that it's about it's about roommates in college, and one takes off uh, after a Thanksgiving experience uh, where she worked with a um, a Haitian rape rape crisis center. She actually went to Haiti and experienced this horrific situation. Yet she wasn't Haitian, right? She was mm-hmm. from Trinidad, I mm-hmm. believe. Um, where where was the genesis of that? What 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 were you what were you constructing in terms of that work? Well, uh, a lot of the stories, um, you know, someone was asking me the other day, like to compare this collection with Creek Crack, and um, and Creek Crack, which is my first collection of stories, which was I, I was published about twenty five years ago, and all I could think of was that the the people in Creek Crack, the characters, could be like the parents or grandparents of these people. So a lot of the uh, the characters run younger. And this story, they're they're like my nieces and nephews who are college age, and and so. But I, at the same time, I sort of pull on my own um, experience of remembering what it was like to be in, in college, and meeting like rich people from the place where you come from for the first time, like um, right. Because the roommate is from a yeah, a she's very... from Trinidadian. She's very she's from a prominent academic family. And but the one telling the story is from a Haitian family. Yeah, she's, is, is, is from a is poor a migrant, Haitian family, migrant, but yeah. there, there are also some rich, like better off Haitian families in the book as well. But this young woman is she's from a, a family of of migrant workers right. um, here in in Florida, and she ends up as with her roommate, uh, the daughter of a Trinidadian scholar who, um, and. And she, ironically, is less enthusiastic about going to right. Haiti on this trip than than the, the the young woman because to her she's just like she's she's like I want to go like she wants to go like to a fun part of Haiti first right. like she wants her exposure to Haiti to she be she hadn't been to Haiti she hadn't been to Haiti and she's like right. well I when I when I go I want to go to the beach and then do this other thing which, which is, is which is an interesting approach. And um, and shows also a kind of protectiveness that that I've seen in young, even in my family and the children of my friends who are young Haitian Americans who have not been to Haiti, but who are very protective of the image of Haiti. Right. You know, who sort of um, and who she wanted to go to the beaches that her yeah, parents told her about. Yeah, and it's not callous. It's not like I no. don't want to do this the service work. It's like she's like, I want to do that first. And I think in a way she also feels like, um, why is that the only thing that people uh, want to want to want to talk about? And that's her like that's this character's it's not a unique viewpoint. And it's something that I get even in the stuff that I write. Like I'm sure I'll get it for this book. People will be like, "Where's the beach?" <laughs> so, so in this case, this young woman is like claiming it for herself. She's like, "I don't. I would like to see like the good things first, because she feels like that. Like she's, she'll be imprinted because that's. I mean, the, it's also a generational thing where young people, we 
you know, I've got, I lived in Haiti and I've been going back, but there are younger people who've never been, but who are carrying around with them their parents' stories. And suddenly their trip is a confrontation with their, with the ideas that of the country that their parents gave them, which is sometimes a very conflicting idea It'd be like, it's the best place in the world. And then like, don't go, you know, at the same <laughs> right. time. So they're carrying that with her. And this young woman, she, I think, the the gist of it is that she wanted to go on her terms, you know, sure. and she and she wanted to see it the way she wanted to to see it. She didn't want to be guided by well, somebody else's view. And to reiterate what you just said, I mean, the characters all throughout this short story collection are from every walk of life. They're mm-hmm. art collectors, art dealers. They are real estate brokers. They are CNAs who are taking care of older people. Mm-hmm. They are young professionals. So, I mean, it's it's every aspect of Haitian life. It's not mm-hmm. just one particular aspect. Yeah, and I also wanted to to have in this these stories um, something that is not talked about generally. For example, there are a lot of um, CNAs, people I know, who are taking care of older Haitians. And when my mom was sick, for example, we um, when we're in the hospital. All the nurses were Haitian, and I remember one day um, she woke up and she, you know, from a little uh, dozy from a procedure, and there's a Haitian male nurse there, and she said, "Oh, you know, maybe that's why we all were all driven here to take care of each other, because everybody who took care of her was was Haitian." So I really also wanted to show that that into like sort of. Haitians working with Haitians, yeah. working for Haitians, which is very, very common here in Miami. But that people outside of, of, of regions where you have a large, you know, large Haitian populations, you don't not, see it as yeah, much. might not. No, see no, as no. Much. It, yeah. I mean, I've grown up here. I've lived here my whole life. I mean, I've known every different community, and there were things that I didn't know about, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of that. And certainly with my own uh, experiences, Haitian CNAs are. Are, are are probably one of the most prominent groups of CNAs mm-hmm. anywhere. Yeah, because uh, it's also one of those things that um, you can learn quickly, like you can do quickly. For, so a lot of young women and older women do it um, because you can, you can take the test, you study, you know, there's a process to it, but it's one of the more accessible so for what for for people who don't know a cna is a caregiver yes it's a it's a just a a notch below being a nurse yeah and yeah it's a home attendant so it's a caregiver like if you go in any mall here in south florida (laughs) and you see an older person they're with their uh, their cna CNA, and 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 we're very fortunate in miami to have so many good ones as mm-hmm. well, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that that dominates the book and something that I wanted to talk to you about was, uh, and I might be wrong, but almost every story is from a woman's perspective. Is that right? Yes, almost, um, except without inspection, oh, which okay, is the I last one. one. Uh, there's a very prominent woman in there, but the, the main character of that story is a is a young man doesn't mean there aren't men i mean men yeah, play a very prominent yeah. role but it's usually the man through the women's perspective yeah no this is primarily the women the women's stories and i i feel like i've always leaned that way in my stories from the beginning and i remember um my very first reading in a bookstore um, in Brooklyn, my brother <laughs> came to the reading and just raised his hand. He's like, where are the men? <laughs> I'm like, you couldn't ask me this privately. <laughs> but um, but then I had, asked in front of the whole audience. <laughs> and, and I thought, you know, and I, I remember just, but he, he forced me to, to think of um, sort of a reason for it, which is that I feel like it's like you're taking a photograph and you decide to focus on a certain image and for me that was always the stories of of women it doesn't mean that they were the victim of the man or necessary you know or or that they're well i i think i know i think you take and i think you make the right choices with every point of view that you take some are first person some Mm -hmm. are more omniscient some are third person but each each time you do it 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 seems like the right choice that you've made yeah well i often you know i think with point of view is tricky um 
you want to hear like the voices of the people, right? So I, um, I just, I just try to let them speak to me, like, and I, and in a shorter kind of um, genre, you know, in this form, you can do that. You kind of just let the, let the voices speak to you. Right. What, I mean, to me, one of the central stories, which just took my breath away, was uh, Sunrise, Sunset as well, which um, which to me, maybe because of what I'm going through with my own parents in one way or another, I mean, is one of the most intimate descriptions of uh, the beginnings of dementia and in the middle of dementia that I've ever read, actually, with the character. I think it's Gloria. Is it Gloria? Uh-huh. Who's the Jean. Jean. Jean and Carol. Oh, Carol, not yeah, Carol. Carol. Carol is the mother, mm-hmm. right? And Jean is going. Jean is the daughter, and so mm-hmm. she's having a, she's having a christening. She's mm-hmm. for her mother, more or less. Mm-hmm. I think. If yeah, I'm not for her mother. She did. She yeah, to keep the peace. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, but her mother keeps coming in and out mm-hmm. of lucidity, more mm-hmm. or less. Um, talk a little bit about it, if you would. Well, um, that story, Sunrise, Sunset, is about, it's sort of the, the mother and daughter on two different ends of, of a bit of mental, you know, challenges. The mother is going through dementia and the daughter has, um, you know, postpartum depression. And neither really understands uh, the other because uh, their relationship is, is a lot like the relationship like I, I feel like I had with my parents on big issues. It's sort of, there's a kind of silence about about big things because like as the mother said she's not a good historian which is some some like I didn't realize it was a medical term but like if you when you go in my old medical adventures with my parents you realize when you they they call a doctor will call someone a good historian if they're able to tell their medical history um and so they don't really communicate and they and and you when I was writing the story, I thought, wow, if the mother could read the daughter's part and if the <laughs> daughter could read the mother's part, they'd really understand each other. And the father's yeah. in a bit of denial. And, yeah, exactly. And and I can understand. I, I I have great understanding for caretaker denial because it takes a while for, you know, for you catch on eventually, like quickly, you have to because of the, the requirements of care. But I think it takes a, a little bit of adjustment and the father's in the middle. And by the end, everyone knows. Yeah. I mean, by the end, it all mm-hmm. becomes very clear. But there is even, I mean, it was haunting to me toward, a, toward the very end to hear the internal life of the mother again, mm-hmm. who really still kind of was there. Mm-hmm. And there's a line where she says, um, it would be fitting... It would be a fitting close to her family life or at least to life with her children. You are always saying hello to them while preparing them to say goodbye to you. You're always dreading the separations while cheering them on to get bigger, smarter, to crawl, babble, walk, speak, to have birthdays that you hope you'll live to see, that you, that you pray they'll live to see. Jean will no, will now know what it's like to live that way, to have a part of yourself walking around unattached to you. So she's she's cognizant yeah. of what is happening with Jean, even with her kind of mm-hmm. dementia. There's that sense of clarity that happens periodically. Yeah. Well, in every case that I've that I've seen, and we've had some very close family friends. Um, who've had dementia there's there's always these moments of absolute like even hyper lucidity well that's what i took that to be yeah it was like this piece of wisdom yeah you know and having kids that are now going on it's true you almost want to bonsai them and not get them to go oh yeah because i (laughs) and i think for also people who you know like my my parents who have had to suddenly raise their children without community, you know, who've had to do it in an apartment in New York and, or, you know, there's just without like the grandmas and the neighbors and everybody around. So you really want to bottle those lessons. And I think for, especially for this mom, she feels like she's slipping away. She's like, oh, at, at least my, and, and, you know, because of an event that, that certainly 
like stimulated the mother a little bit out of her, you know, postpartum um, depression. She feels like at least she, you know, at least I think she feels like at least I know she knows like now she's felt like these, like the stirrings of motherhood, which the mother feels like she, she's sort of, she's experienced it under very difficult circumstances. Let's talk, let's talk lastly, stylistically about what you chose to do in this book. This to me, and I could be wrong and you can tell me I'm wrong because we know each other well, but Mm -hmm. to me, this seems like one of the most straightforwardly written books that you've done. By that I mean the style is extremely, it's more expository than any other style, mm-hmm. less lyrical than some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. Although it's beautifully written, um, it gives it, to me, it makes it that much more impactful as well. Uh, um, I mean, when you talk about Claire of the Sea Light, you know, that was a much more lyrically written novel in many, many passages. Is this something that you did intentionally? Or is it something that is where you are now? Um, it's it's very fascinating. I was just reading something, one of the reviews of the book where um, it was a beautiful, beautifully written review. It was like one of those where you're like, even if you're trashing me, I'm going to love this review. But it wasn't, it was just, and the person said, gone is the pyrotechnics, gone is the, um, and and I thought it's maybe where I am now. I mean, or maybe what these stories demanded um, I think I, it just feels it was like more in this in this case more important to just kind of like linger on like these small moments and really get close like to the like to the skin um, and just kind of let the characters speak more than the language. I mean, it's just maybe how they came out, you know? No, no, I think it did it. I think it's, Mm. I think it's a whole like that. It's not, you know, and it's, it's so effective because you are learning about these stories and you're getting so close to the bone of each character as well. Yeah. And one of the things like I have, um, and I didn't want it to be, I also didn't want this to be a collection of like every story I have. (laughs) So I have other stories that I didn't put in because they felt like thematically jolting, like they would send out. So, um, so I can, I, there is a kind of similar thread to these particular stories in a way that I felt like they could, um, speak to one another in a certain way. But I disagree about the pyrotechnics. I don't know if anyone's hearing all the thunder that's going on, <laughs> yes. but we're having pyrotechnics here in Miami yes, right now. Right here. In fact, I hear sadly that there's a hurricane just a few days away that might be heading toward Puerto Rico, in fact. Yeah, yeah. We, um, we sort of live in the eye of it here, right? And um, and as soon as they announce it, you you know we get nervous on many levels. You get nervous for the family and friends on the islands, and then you sort of have to get your stuff together here. So hopefully it won't be you know too Except bad. Except I think we're going to solve the hurricane problem with nuclear bombs being dropped in the middle of them, according to our president this weekend. Well, <laughs> I would I would laugh at this stuff if I didn't have young children yeah no we all it's just it's very um and then the fate of the world you know seems so precarious these days you know let's for those who don't know and i i i I know your biography but if you could just quickly give a little thumbnail of the fact that you came from haiti and you moved to brooklyn is where you came and you came basically without your parents, right? Mm-hmm. And you moved to Brooklyn and you stayed with... Okay, so I was born in Haiti um, in 1969 during the um, Duvalier dictatorship. My father moved to the U.S. Uh, when I was two. And then um, two years later, my mom joined him and I uh, stayed with my aunt and uncle who in raised Haiti, me in Haiti. Um, and so I was in Haiti for eight years. Uh, between the time my mom left, I mean, I was, well, I was there for the first 12 years of my life, but I was eight years um, 
without uh, both my parents During and a very repressive regime. Yes, and um, and doing the that eight those eight years, my parents were um, undocumented here in the U.S. But at some point, they they got their papers and went to Haiti once and filed papers for us. And when I was twelve. Um, in 1981, I moved to Brooklyn, New York, and um, I went started school there. Doing at the height of the um, AIDS epidemic, during which um, Haitians we were the only group um, considered high risk by nationality, with with brought with it a whole host of complications. People again, people who were like CNAs um, lost their jobs because people didn't. Right. know how trans you know how the disease was transmitted and people who worked in kitchens lost their jobs a lot of my parents um, friends lost their jobs and i remember uh, the kids at school would hit us and you know make fun of us and i remember there was one school trip we weren't even allowed to go to um so it was a very difficult time to land in new york what got me through uh personally it was was reading and I remember going to my high school was very close to the main branch of the Brooklyn Public Library um, and across from the Brooklyn Museum. So I would go to the library all the time and get like all the books that I could read in, in French then. Um, a lot of that's how I started reading a lot of Haitian literature, which was on those shelves then. And, um, and then I started reading. I, first book I read in English was Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. I read that with a dictionary and was just like completely overwhelmed by like... You learned how, English in the United States. In the United States, yeah. Um, and and then I started writing when, when I was in high school for a newspaper called New Youth Connections, which was a newspaper that was distributed throughout um, high schools, public high schools in New York City. And I wrote a story for them about my first day in the U.S. that then I kept writing and that became Breath Eyes Memory. Oh, is that right? That yeah. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And, and your career has just sort of gone in so many different directions. I mean, Brother, I'm Dying is one of the most, mm-hmm. you know, remarkable stories of, 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 of love as well as immigration as well as being entangled in our horrible immigration process. Um, and that's about your uncle, right, who yeah. tried to come over but was stuck in Chrome and couldn't get out of Chrome and all of that sort of thing. Um, and then and then just last year when you wrote The Art of Dying, which to me, you know, uh, I would be carrying it around and reading it and, People are going, you really like reading about all that stuff dealing with dying. <laughs> and I go, yes, well, if you read this book, you will too. Uh, and now you've written children's books as well. Um, and I have to say, for those who don't know Edwidge, she's also probably one of the most informed people about cultural and culture in general, not only just popular culture, but you can't have a conversation with Edwidge without her either asking questions or telling you about something that you didn't know about. And it's something that I've always, always, always appreciated about our time together. And I know that the death of Toni Morrison meant a lot to you as well. And the life of Toni Morrison did. Talk a little bit about that. Oh my gosh, Ms. Morrison. Um, We've had some wonderful sort of circuitous encounters. So I first met her at a reading I went to at Barnes and Noble, um, where she had um, edited, I think, some like Tony Kid Bambara's last book, um, "These Bones Are Not My Child," or had written an introduction, was presenting it at this Barnes and Noble. There she is. <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> hello, Ms. Morrison. Uh, so I I remember going and like I brought her some flowers and and. I was lucky enough to have Jill Cremens, the author's photographer, was there that right. night, and um, she took a picture of us. And at that time, I had used was working also before that for Jonathan Demi, who had right. um, was about to shoot Beloved. So I saw her again on the set of Beloved, and I just remember being 
incredibly, like as a writer, being on that set, you know, where I was, I'm actually in that movie. Quiet, really? quiet as it's kept. Oh, so wow. there, there are 30 women who come to kind of um, oust the ghost. And so I'm, I'm an extra. I'm one of the 30 women. Oh, if cool. you blink, you'll miss me, but I'm in there. And so I remember seeing her, her on the set and the day she was coming to the set, everybody was just like, oh my God, I was so excited because we were like living in her brain, you know, like filming this movie. And then um, a couple of years later, she invited me when she was doing this month-long residency at the Louvre. So we got to spend some time together in, in Paris at the Louvre when she was in residence, which was a, a glorious like residency. She, uh, A lot of the talks that she gave at the Louvre are in her um, recent book, the uh, of essays and the speeches. Yeah, yeah, on the, the theme was the foreigner's home. So 10 years after that, we... Um, uh, her son Ford had filmed all of that, and then some filmmakers put together a film called *The Foreigner's Home* about that. And then I got to go to her home and and talk to her on 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 screen about about that. So uh, her passing, you know, at 88, she gave us so much, but it's you know it's a very it's it's very sad. I'm still getting used to it, as I am getting used to the. Also, the death of Paul Marshall. Yeah, I just saw was, that. Yeah, who was a, also a very important um, writer and person in my life, who who helped me get my first job at NYU um, as a young writer, who I also spent a lot of time with in in her office there. So it's it's sort of a a, a year of it's a passing of yeah, generations. Yeah, I think. it's very it's very sad. But I, I you know I want to say what I loved most about both women as writers is that in their presence they had incredible friendships with other writers and in their presence you never had that feeling that someone was trying to knock someone off the throne (laughs) that there was so much sisterhood and and just generosity yes that i i felt like was a wonderful model to have or some of the other shoulders you feel like you stand on um, a Haitian writer, Marie-Vieux Chauvet, who I never had the the honor of meeting, but who was an extraordinary writer, one of our seminal writers. Um, one of her novels was, um, it's like actually her seminal work is called Amour, Colère, Folie, Love, Anger, and Madness. Did you write the introduction? The, I wrote to that. the introduction to that, and it was a, a long, you know, uh, Holland trying to get that in English, but it's now in the modern library. People can read, can read her and and a writer named Jacques Romain, Masters of the Dew, and um, Jacques Stéphane Alexis, who actually um, wrote a, a novel that inspired my wanting to explore the the massacre of uh, Haitian cane workers in the farming of bones. Wow. Well, Edwidge, it's just been delightful to have you as part of you know on the literary life um what i'd love you to do is if you could give uh our audience just a little taste of what they will come to enjoy about everything inside that would be great if you could just do a little reading from it okay so this is from my guy story (laughs) without (laughs) inspection um and it's about it's about a man falling and it's something um, I started writing this story when um, two things were happening simultaneously in the news here where boats were coming and on like a regular beach here, someone like a boat from Haiti or from Cuba would land on a beach. And then, right. and then there were people who were working on construction sites who were just were falling, plunging to sadly to their deaths. So this, um, this is the man, this man is falling and has fallen and he lands somewhere in a cement mixer on the construction site, and he's thinking about the people he loves. This landing was even more abrupt than his last one. His free fall ended as his body slammed into the drum of the cement mixer. He was being tossed inside a dark blender full of grout. Every few seconds, his face would emerge from under the wet, pounded sand and pebbles, and he would keep his mouth closed, trying to force air out through his nose and push away the grainy mix that his body was trying to inhale. 
He pretended that he was swimming and tried to flutter kick, just as he had when the speedboat stopped in the middle of the ocean and he was told to swim ashore. He attended... He attempted arm strokes, but couldn't move either his arms or his legs. Still, his body was in constant motion because the mixer continued to turn. He reached for the shaft, what in a more stable place, in a house or a temple or some other holy place you might call a potomitan, a middle pillar. He used what was left of his strength to propel his body towards the shaft and wrapped his hands around it. He was able to hold on briefly before he was pulled in another direction. He felt lighter now, even lighter than when he had been falling. His bones were melting, his blood evaporating, and he was now like parchment or something porous, tool or the white eyelet lace Darlene loved. He had not been paying attention to the alternating hum and jangle of the mixer. He hadn't noticed that there were streaks of blood polluting the cement or that he was feeling no pain. Then the mixture stopped spinning, and he heard the stillness, which was soon replaced by screams and grunts and, oh my God. Then he heard the sirens, which took him back to the beach, to the gray sand, and Darlene's sable face, her azure jogging suit, Paris's red shirt, and his own orange and green speckled vomit. Then he heard the sirens, which took him back to the beach, to the gray sand and Darlene's sabled face, her azure jogging suit, Paris's red shirt. From where he was lying inside the cement mixer, he saw an airplane cart across the clear blue sky, and that was when he realized that he was dying, and his dying offered him a kind of freedom he'd never had before. Whatever he thought about, he could see in front of him. Whatever he wanted, he could have, except what he wanted most of all which was not to die. Mm. Beautiful, Edwidge. Thank you. Thank you for being on the very thunderous literary life today. (laughs) Yes, this was a really thunderous one. (laughs) Thank you for having me. 